Many years ago, when I was serving a church in Montecito, Santa Barbara, on a Sunday when this gospel was read, a parishioner who happened to be quite wealthy said to me at the door of the church after the service, I just don't understand why Jesus hates rich people. <laughs> it's actually a, a fairly common perception of this passage, especially with the famous line about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a great artistic depiction of this scene at a winery in Napa, where a life-size statue of a camel stares at a large, maybe eight-foot-tall needle with an eye that is much smaller than the camel's head. And there's sort of a delicious piece of irony, I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, to this piece of art, because you have to walk by the camel looking at the eye of the needle to get into a tasting room that features $100 a bottle Cabernet. <laughs> but what does the passage say? Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus does not hate anyone, including rich people. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who laid Jesus' body in his own tomb. Elsewhere in the gospel, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and wealth. To which I have always responded, but you can serve God with wealth. Now traditionally, this is the time of year when we are asking you, the members of the church, to make a financial commitment to the church for the coming year. But we've actually moved our annual fund to January through March of the year in which we're trying to raise the funds. So it's actually kind of great to be able to talk about this passage at a time when we are not asking you to make a pledge to the church. The question Jesus is asking here is who do you serve? Where is your heart? In the ancient world, prosperity was seen as a reward or byproduct of having spiritual virtue. So the rich young man would have been seen as someone who is virtuous and faithful. When he comes to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus asks him not about what he believes, but about his practices, about his behavior. And you, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus throws in, you shall not defraud, which is not one of the Ten Commandments, but appears elsewhere as a way of asking the man if his money was gained honestly. When the man affirms that he has followed these practices since he was young, Jesus then drops the bomb about selling his possessions, giving money to the poor, and following Jesus. The passage then says that the man went away grieving 
because he had many possessions. There are a number of things going on here. First, Jesus is trying to turn the young man from a focus on his own salvation to a focus on the community. Hence the line about family towards the end of the passage. The man wants to be first. Jesus uses this to say that that approach to life and to God only leads to being last. Second, Jesus is flipping on its head the cultural expectation that prosperity is the reward of spiritual virtue. If there is one thing Jesus does again and again and again, it is to show that serving God and following him is often at odds with cultural expectations. And I think it's important to say here that this passage is actually an emphatic rejection of the prosperity gospel that has become popular among some American Christians. Most importantly, Jesus is asking the rich young man to give up that which holds him back from loving God completely. Jesus wants the man to be free. The issue is not wealth per se, but that this young man is possessed by his possessions. His trust is in them. His security is based on what he owns and not on God. Jesus is inviting him to place his faith and trust and sense of security in God and God alone. The reason that Jesus focuses on the rich so much is that our accumulation of wealth and the status that wealth confers can draw us away from trusting God. Jesus is talking about the challenges that wealth can present. And this is especially the case if we see our wealth or privilege either as a sign that we have been favored by God or even worse, of our own self-sufficiency. Now, my entire ministry has been in affluent communities, Montecito, Santa Barbara, and Ross. And I want to say that some of the most faithful and generous followers of Jesus I have ever known have been among those whom we would all call rich. And in some of the poorest parts of Malawi, Africa, I have met Christians who trust in God as if their life depended on it, because it does. Now, I'm a priest. I've given my life to the service of God in Christ. But if I am truly, truly honest, I'm not sure I have trusted God with the depth that I saw in Malawi. Part of that 
is because my life is of a lot more shiny objects to chase after in search of fulfillment. And I'm not talking about the church so much as I am about the place of Jesus Christ in our lives. Church is about helping us do that. It is the community of love that helps us turn outward in order to find God within. So how shall we respond to this passage? I think the faithful thing to do is to ask and honestly answer what physical or non-physical things stop us from giving our whole heart to God and following Jesus fully. Is it your wealth? Are you possessed by your possessions? I know this is a great temptation for me. What about social status and privilege? Striving to be first at the expense of others is what prompts Jesus to say, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The college admissions cheating scandal we've heard so much about over the last year is an example of this. And one of those families was from here in Ross. And the father of that family was one of the most vocally opposed people to St. John's participation in the rotating emergency homeless shelter program. Social media, it can be a connector or it can be a battle of egos and anger. I've said this before, but one of the things that I did during the pandemic was delete my Twitter account because I didn't like who I was and how I behaved on Twitter. Again, Jesus is concerned with our practices and how we live our faith more than what we profess to believe. Love is as love does. A commentary about this passage said, Discipleship begins when we renounce what enslaves us, what keeps us from being free. So really spend some time this week asking yourself these questions. I'm going to just throw in another quote I heard about this passage that said, uh, said, the fact that there's a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven tells you everything you need to know. I want to close with a prayer that is often attributed to Sir Francis Drake. Tomorrow is Indigenous Peoples Day, so I realize this looks like really bad timing. <laughs> Though, from what I've learned, uh, Sir Francis Drake's encounter with the Coast Miwok was actually quite unique in how amicable it was. Not that he's not a problematic character. 
And if we're going to rename things, perhaps it should be Miwok Bay, not Drake's Bay. Fortunately, for me at least, there is absolutely no evidence that the prayer was actually written by Sir Francis Drake. And the language of the prayer does not match the time at which he lived. This prayer has even been adapted and used by Desmond Tutu. But I think it speaks powerfully to the intention of today's gospel. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Amen.